Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. Tonight, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Andrew Kolodnoy. He is one of the nation's leading experts on the prescription opioid and heroin crisis. He is the co-director of the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative at the Hellas School for Social Policy and Management. His primary area of focus is the prescription opioid and heroin crisis devastating families and communities across the country. He is also the executive director of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And actually, you've been just recently named president again. Prescribing an organization with a mission to reduce morbidity and mortality caused by overprescribing of opioid analgesics. Dr. Kolodnoy, we are very glad to have you here. You may not remember the first time we met seven years ago, but I happened to be on the same floor of the same um, Marriott Hotel in Washington, D.C., and three times we met in the elevator. And little did I know, seven years later, I'd get to know you really well. Uh, just one of those coincidences. We were at the Fed Up conference in, in Washington, D.C., and we just kept going in and out. And um, you would just happen to be there every time I was there. So I am very, very glad to have you on here. And I think sometimes I think, Andrew, that there's, um, there's two of you or three of you because you do so much stuff. I can't believe you do it all and get it all done and remember all of it, you know? So how are we doing with them right now with the opioid epidemic and the way it's going? You know, that, that's not an easy question to answer because it really depends on what aspect of this problem that you're looking at. To really answer the, the question, you know, how are we doing? Um, I think we'd have to begin with, with defining the problem which is not as straightforward as people think. So, you know, you're asking, how are we doing with the opioid crisis? I would really start by framing what the opioid crisis is. And, and I think the best way to understand the crisis, the best way to frame it is as an epidemic of opioid addiction, meaning that all of these health and social problems that we're referring to when we talk about the opioid crisis, like record high levels of overdose deaths, soaring increase in infants born opioid dependent, outbreaks of injection related infectious diseases, impact on the workforce, heroin moving into non-urban communities across the country. All of these different problems have been driven by an increase in the number of Americans with the condition of opioid addiction. So the opioid crisis is an epidemic of opioid addiction. So how are we doing in terms of the epidemic? Well, in terms of mortality, we're doing terrible. The, more, the mortality could not be worse, meaning the number of Americans dying of opioid-related overdoses each year is, is just continuing to skyrocket. Back in 2010, the CDC was referring to the, the problem, particularly of overdose deaths, as the worst drug epidemic in U.S. history. That was in 2010. And every year since 2010, overdose deaths have gone up. Every year we've set a new record, and then the next year we break that record. And in the past few years, it hasn't just gone up it's really skyrocketed. So in a 12 month period, one of the most recent timeframes that we have for, for data on overdose deaths, more than 100,000 Americans died of a drug overdose. Overwhelmingly, these were opioid related overdoses. So in terms of the mortality, things could not be worse. But there are other ways of looking at the problem, which could potentially give us some hope so if we're really thinking about this, these skyrocketing deaths as being driven by the increase in the number of people with opioid addiction, 
a life-threatening condition and because so many so many Americans now have this condition that's why we're seeing so many deaths if, if we really understand the deaths to be related to all of these people with opioid addiction and we understand this is an epidemic of opioid addiction one very important way of looking at this problem would be to look at how many Americans are becoming newly addicted every year. And another term for that would be the incidence of opioid addiction. And there is reason to believe that fewer Americans are becoming addicted. Among Americans who have this disease, the death rate couldn't be worse, but it is very likely that less Americans became addicted to opioids in the past few years than were becoming addicted earlier. And there's good reason to believe that this is happening. Are we reducing the prescriptions? Yes. So I think the, the reason that we're seeing less Americans become newly addicted is because prescribing has been trending in the right direction. So um, as doctors and dentists and nurse practitioners begin to prescribe more appropriately, that means less patients getting addicted and it means less medicine chests being stocked with a highly addictive drug that could lead to a family member uh, becoming addicted. We still have a long way to go. The pro prescribing in the United States is still far too aggressive more aggressive than any other country, which means that many Americans are still becoming newly addicted, but I think the number is going down. I believe less Americans are becoming addicted now than, than they were at the height of, of opioid prescribing. I have a question though. I, I have a friend who had a knee replacement two weeks ago, full knee replacement, and they still insisting that she be on tramadol and oxycodone and you know and telling them not to take ibuprofen and and i find that still amazing the nurse comes to the house and says no you can't you've got to stay on these pills because it's got to be it's going to you know you, you can't have that breakthrough thing you've got to stay ahead of it and you know to me it's been two weeks and this person's still on opioids i think they're setting them up for a for a become addicted, you know, even if they're not the type that would normally get addicted. But if you're on it for any length of time, you know, it's going to be hard to get off of it. Yeah. So there, there's no question that someone who's taking opioids every day, even if you're taking opioids every day uh, in as little as five days, even less, physiological dependence, it's also called physical dependence. Uh, I don't like the term physical because the, the symptoms are not just physical. Um, the, the, so I think physiological is, is a better term for it. But if you take an opioid every day uh, for for even less than five days, your body starts to get used to the drug such that if you then try and stop taking the drug, you'll experience withdrawal symptoms. And, and the withdrawal symptoms are not just these flu-like symptoms that many people know about when, when we talk about opioid withdrawal but it's also accompanied by severe anxiety. People can feel like they're having a panic attack. Now, if somebody was just taking opioids for three or four or five days and the dose was very low, maybe it was a weaker opioid like tramadol and they stop it abruptly, they'll experience some withdrawal symptoms, but those withdrawal symptoms would probably be mild. Um, and the patient might not even really know that they're going into withdrawal. They might not know why they feel a little fluish why they have insomnia for a couple of days or, or why their pain may have gotten a little bit worse. And many people will just you know, not look back, but that's physiological dependence. And certainly if someone who's taking opioids every day for a few weeks or, or certainly months, it can be very hard to ever come off. We have very good data that tells us that if a patient takes an opioid every day for 10 days, one in five of the patients who do that will still be taking an opioid one year later. Take an opioid every day for 30 days, about 40% of patients are still on an opioid one year later because of the dependence 
that that sets in on on the drug now in the drug company sponsored advocacy and marketing that that really changed the way the medical community prescribed opioids and to such an extent that even today during the when we're the opioid crisis is so severe you would have a friend who's being prescribed opioids aggressively that campaign that changed prescribing practices one of the messages for the medical community was don't worry about addiction addiction is extremely rare and the way in which doctors were led to believe something that should have been so obviously false was this message that physical dependence or physiological dependence and addiction are totally different so what doctors started to hear is yes your patients will get physically dependent if they're taking it every day but don't worry about that that's totally benign they can stop it whenever they, they they can come off easily that's like your blood pressure jumping up if you stop your blood pressure pill too quickly it just means we shouldn't stop the drugs abruptly but that's totally different from addiction and that's unimportant and addiction is rare now that was false it, it's part there there's a, a kernel of truth physical dependence and addiction are not identical if you took an opioid every day for five days and then you felt a little sick when you stopped and then you never look back I wouldn't call that addiction so it is true that they're not identical but they're very closely related the reason that opioids are so highly addictive is because of the physical dependence it's because you feel awful when you try and stop taking the drug and if you feel really awful including experiencing a worsening of pain because opioid withdrawal includes hypersensitivity to pain if you feel really awful when you try and stop taking a drug that will make you want to keep taking it and if you keep taking a drug even though it's harming you that's addiction one thing i've noticed is the people that have been on it for a long time when they go to sleep some night because you know, i think there's different types of things like overdose sometimes people think well the overdose the guy's out or the woman's locked in the cbs bathroom and they're shooting up and and they they pass out but what about all these people that I hear about who were on high numbers of opioids and just go to bed and never wake up? And they're only like 50 years old and, and they, you know, they're apparently their brain or their heart stopped. And do those people even get recorded as, as an opioid death or an overdose death? Uh, that's a great question. Um, they, yes, they do get recorded if they're middle in their early middle age, if they're 40 or 50 um, and they don't wake up in the morning and um, often what will happen if someone dies in their sleep is the police will come uh, to the house and if they see nothing suspicious then um, uh, then in all likelihood this will never get recorded as an overdose especially if it's an older person in their 60s or 70s or 80s who may have had multiple pro pro medical problems they didn't wake up in the morning what the police will generally do is um, uh, let the medical examiner know that there's nothing suspicious the doctor winds up getting a call and um, uh, about the patient's medical history and they come up with a cause of, of death that's natural, not a drug overdose. But if the patient was a little younger, um, uh, or there was reason to believe that um, that there was a, a drug overdose, um, certainly if if it's a heroin user and there's paraphernalia, that will get picked up. And and so you're absolutely right. Deaths involving prescription opioids are harder to to count, even though that's the case. Up until around 2012, the vast majority of opioid overdoses in the United States were prescription opioid overdoses. And the age group where we were seeing most of these deaths were in middle-aged people. I believe it was an enormous undercount
for the reason we've just discussed, because many of these deaths didn't look suspicious, were never recorded. It wasn't really until fentanyl emerged and the heroin supply became so exceptionally dangerous, and this really starts to happen around 2014, that's when deaths in heroin users began to surpass deaths in people taking prescription opioids and have since far surpassed the the people overdosing on pills. But for up until really 2012, 2014, the vast majority of opioid-related overdose deaths in the United States were prescription opioid overdoses. And many of these deaths were in middle-aged patients prescribed opioids. So what is actually physically occurring that causes their brain to stop? I mean, I was always told that opioids uh, steal the endorphins and natural endorphins and create artificial endorphins. And that's why people get addicted and desire to go after it. So what, what is physically stopping in the brain or in the body that makes them go never to wake up? Yeah, so opioids have many different uh, effects, and they do have um, uh, some direct effects, obviously, on the brain's um, uh, uh, reward and pleasure pathways, um, which are related to dopamine, um, but they have other effects on, on our brain and on our brain stem, and there's an area of the brain responsible for automatic breathing. It makes us breathe. We don't, when we're breathing, we're not thinking we have to take our next breath. It's happening involuntarily. And one of the effects of opioids is that it, 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 they inhibit, they slow down that region of the brain so that we lose the involuntary breathing that should come naturally. And so people will, um, generally become very sedated on a high dose of opioids, they're not breathing, and then brain death will ultimately set in. So basically they're suffocating, but they're not, uh, they're no, they don't realize they are. They don't, realize, they don't feel like they're suffocating, but that, that's correct, they, they stop breathing. And of course, uh, the way naloxone or Narcan works is that the opioids um, that are activating the opioid receptors in the brain, including the region of the brain that's uh, responsible for our automatic breathing, the naloxone kicks the opioid off of the receptor and um, it's, it, it's attracted to the same receptor, um, but it doesn't stimulate the receptor or, or inhibit the receptor. It doesn't have the opioid action. And so the person will start breathing again. Okay. Now today, we're doing less prescriptions, but we have more deaths. And my belief is that the fentanyl surge is what's causing the increase in the deaths because we have so many, so many uh, artificial, I guess, fentanyl floating around in this country. And it's mixed in with all the different types of drugs people might be taking. Um, is, is that impulse so great that to have the have the opioid effect that people knowingly with the fentanyl possibility, they don't fear it. Does it take away the fear of dying? I don't think it necessarily takes away the fear of dying. Um, but op the one of the effects of opioid withdrawal, uh, so someone, the, the people who are losing their lives are, we know are overwhelmingly addicted to opioids and obviously physiologically dependent on opioids meaning that when they don't use an opioid, they are going into withdrawal. And when you're going into withdrawal, you feel like you are going to die. And when I say you feel like you're going to die, I'm not just saying that you feel so much pain or you feel so sick that you would just wish you were dead, which some people will describe feeling so awful that they, they would wish that they were dead. But there is also an effect that opioids have on a region of our brain responsible for what's called the fight or flight response. If, um, and that's a region of the, um, of, of the brain that 
will uh, light up if let's say you were walking in in the jungle and there was a, a lion there ready to, to tear you to pieces that region of the brain is going to light up and give you a surge of adrenaline so that you can run for your life and when you take an opioid acutely and you're experiencing an opioid one of the reasons the effects of opioids are pleasurable is that they inhibit they quiet this region of the brain that gets people uh, that can make you extremely anxious that gives you all that adrenaline so that you can run for for your life and when you when you're taking opioids chronically because you're hooked on them that region of the brain is staying quiet but when you're going into opioid withdrawal that region of the brain wakes up with a vengeance and people have a surge of these fight or flight hormones they feel like there's a lion ready to tear them to pieces but they don't see a lion and so there it's been described as a sense of impending doom and so it's severe anxiety like a panic attack except panic attacks will usually go away in about 30 minutes whereas the anxiety from opioid withdrawal just keeps building and building on itself so if you ever wondered why people would do such desperate things sometimes like forge prescriptions um, commit robberies uh, in order to maintain their opioid supply it's because they really feel like they're going to die without the drug and so individuals out there right now who are losing their lives to fentanyl they're not going out and shooting up fentanyl because this is such a pleasurable it's so much fun and it's so pleasurable that they're willing to risk their lives they're using fentanyl because without the fentanyl if they they would they feel like they're going to die and fentanyl is what's available on the black market right now heroin is is really disappearing almost uh, in most many parts of the country certainly on the in the eastern part of the united states there's very little heroin. What's available on the black market is illicit fentanyl. So your options are to get treated or to continue using. And if you're continuing to use, all you've got is this exceptionally dangerous supply to keep using. So you say that is does heroin and fentanyl look alike? Um uh so heroin will generally uh be a, have a, a slight brownish hint to it, um, whereas uh, fentanyl, uh, pure fentanyl, is certainly going to be a, a, a white powder, but typically they're mixed. They What was happening uh, early on was they were mixing the, the two, and um, uh, so in general, what's sold as heroin on the street is increasingly fentanyl, and it will be cut and sometimes made to look like heroin but increasingly there's no heroin in it. It's just fentanyl and, and cut other, other drugs mixed into it. Yeah, even though <clears throat> you and I know, can you explain to the listeners what is the makeup of an opioid pill versus heroin and how are they, is, is, is an opioid synthetic or is that part of a poppy seed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So. You know, when we when we talk when we use the term opioid, um, it's a little confusing because sometimes if you if you call something an opioid uh, in science, often that means that it's like something but not the same as something. With opioids, though, it it really doesn't follow that that general rule. When you hear the term opioid, that is an all encompassing term that includes natural opioids. Another term for the natural opioids is opiate. And the natural opiates, the natural opioids, meaning the opiates, they include morphine and codeine. Morphine and codeine exist naturally. They are in the sap of the poppy plant. They are in, op and the sap of the poppy plant is opium. 
And inside opium, you have these natural molecules there, morphine and, and codeine. And those are the opiates. Now you can take molecules that exist naturally, like morphine and codeine, and there's another molecule inside opium called thebane. You can take these natural opioids and treat them chemically to create what we call semi-synthetic opioids. We're calling them semi-synthetic because they're partly natural, partly man-made. A good example of a semi-synthetic opioid is heroin. As everybody knows, heroin is made from, you grow opium poppies to make heroin. Now, why do you, why would drug cartels go to the trouble of turning opium into heroin? Well, the reason they do that is because when you create the semi-synthetic opioid heroin, what you're actually doing is changing the molecule so that it's more potent, stronger basically, and so that it gets into the brain faster because our brain is composed of mostly fat and you're making the molecule more dissolvable in fat so it gets in the brain faster. That's what you're doing when you make heroin. And that's why drug cartels make heroin because they have a more potent product that's basically more rewarding effect, more addictive. Now, hydrocodone and oxycodone and hydromorphone, which is Dilaudid, or oxymorphone, which was Opana, these are also semi-synthetic opioids. And they are almost identical to heroin. The pharmaceutical companies that have manufactured oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxymorphone, hydromorphone, the reason that they manufacture and these semi-synthetic opioids, the reason they convert opiates into these molecules is because they're producing drugs that get into the brain faster, that have a more rewarding effect. What I'm basically saying, Tony, is that when we talk about these ex very commonly prescribed opioids, we're essentially talking about heroin pills. Now, there is a third group of opioid, and these are opioids that you don't need opium to make. And they include fentanyl, they include tramadol, methadone, uh, it includes a drug called tapentadol, the brand name is Nucinta. These are completely synthetic. They're just made from, from chemicals. Well, um, it's a lot to keep track of there. <laughs> So when I hear that Johnson & Johnson had uh, 10,000 acres of poppy seeds in Tasmania, so what, what is there? Are they making, like, now you haven't mentioned Oxycontin yet in any of these. And I know it's a more of a time-released oxycodone type of drug. Um, but how is Oxycontin making? Is that made... Any part of that come from the poppy seed or does that come yes. from? Yes. So Oxycontin, uh, the active ingredient is oxycodone, uh, which uh, is a semi-synthetic opioid. And, you know, I, it, I'm glad that you brought up Johnson & Johnson and their, their poppy fields in Tasmania. Uh, Johnson & Johnson was quite clever, though, uh, around 2015, just as America was beginning to really figure out that we have a severe problem with opioids, uh, they sold their, their opium business. Um, and they even sold some of their, the opioid branded products that they had like Nucinta to, to another drug company. So they tried to get themselves out of uh, the, the opioid business. But uh, the largest supplier of opioid molecules in the United States was Johnson & Johnson. Purdue Pharma, to make OxyContin, it bought, basically it was buying its opium 
its uh, its its um, opioid molecules from Johnson and Johnson, and th they never would have been able to sell as much OxyContin in the United States had Johnson and Johnson not ramped up the production of opium in Tasmania to supply uh, Purdue. But uh, Johnson and Johnson also supplied other branded opioid manufacturers and all of the generic opioids in the United States, um, all of the generic Vicodin, Lortab, Norco, the, the different opioids that were available to make those generic opioids, Johnson and Johnson was also providing the opium to the generic manufacturers. And Johnson and Johnson was you know, quite clever because not only were they growing the opium used for American uh, prescription narcotics, the, uh, they were growing the opium that was being used for the natural opiates, the semi-synthetics, but Johnson & Johnson's own opioids that they sold under their own brands were completely synthetic. They were selling the fentanyl patch duragesic. They were the, it was Johnson and Johnson that bought, brought tramadol into the United States, uh, created that drug as well. Uh, they sold it under the name Ultram and a, another synthetic opioid, Nucinta, which is Tepentadol, uh, a drug with effects very similar to Dilaudid. And so they basically cornered the entire market. Um, they had their own synthetics. And then they sold the precursors to the other companies for the um, natural and semi-synthetic opiates. So <clears throat> would you say that, I know this is kind of a tough question, but you can elaborate on it. Would you say that Johnson & Johnson has done more damage in the United States than Purdue Pharma? Or does Purdue Pharma's false advertising and all they did, did they create the most damage? It's, uh, it's very hard to apportion the blame. Um, they both had their, their role and it's hard to say which was, was worse. <laughs> there would have been no, uh, I don't think we, there would have been an OxyContin that would have become a, um, a blockbuster drug, a drug bringing in billions in sales had Johnson and Johnson not been able to provide them with this massive amount of you know the the ingredients to make oxycodone, um, so but I I would say that when it came to changing the way the medical community thought about using opioids as a class of drug, this idea that we're going to get doctors to to prescribe a drug just like heroin to be taken for weeks and months and years for common chronic problems like low back pain. That was um, that brilliant but horrible idea. That really was an idea pushed uh, primarily by Purdue. Now, when Purdue basically takes oxycodone, uh, a drug that had been on the market for decades, a it was generic, and they repackage it as an extended release and they call it OxyContin, and then they market it for back pain and common conditions, and they turn this old generic drug into a billion dollar product, other pharmaceutical companies took note. And Johnson & Johnson, they had a their fentanyl patch they had been promoting it for cancer. When they saw, look how much money can be made if you promote an opioid for back pain and for arthritis and for headaches, for fibromyalgia, they said, hey, we got to do the same thing. And they changed the whole marketing of their fentanyl patch. And then other drug companies began to say, we've got to get in on this as well. And we wound up getting a steady stream of new opioids. And each time a new opioid hit the market, well, it costs a lot of money to bring an op a, a pharmaceutical product to market. A drug company is going to want to recoup that investment. When your product gets approved, 
you don't just put it out there and sit on your hands and hope doctors will prescribe it. When the drug is getting launched, it's getting launched with a massive marketing campaign to get prescribing of that product to go up. So every time we got a new opioid on the market, it was just pouring fuel on the fire because now you had a company with a a financial incentive to get more opioids prescribed because their opioid was now on the market. And so we saw opioid prescribing in the United States skyrocket from really the mid nineties up until around 2012, we were setting enormous records in terms of opioid consumption. Well, I'm shaking my head on this one because I'm, I'm just trying to figure out are these corporations like Johnson and Johnson and Purdue? I mean, I know they're greedy. I know they want lots of money, but don't they have any moral fiber in them whatsoever to knowingly know what they knew and to to do this? Is it's just mind-boggling because they, they you know, a corporation like Johnson and Johnson is owned technically by stockholders. But there are a few people on the top when the stockholders make money, they get huge bonuses and, and millions and millions of dollars. <clears throat> Is there something wrong with that system? There's something, very, there's something very wrong with, with the system. So part of the problem has been that the companies have really been able to literally get away with, with murder. Um, what we've seen over and over again is that some of the corporations involved in illegally promoting opioids uh, and marketing um, have in some cases been criminally convicted. Good example would be a company called Cephalon, uh, which made a fentanyl uh, product called Actic, and then they made another fentanyl product called Fentora. Um, they were found guilty or they pled guilty to off-label marketing of the drug which is a felony the company they pled the company pled guilty to a felony the company paid a fine but not a single individual was held accountable not a single individual was charged criminally not a single individual paid a single penny and if you look at how much money was made at the end of the day on that product and how much they continued to make off of these products even after paying their their fine because they had changed the way doctors thought about using these drugs the the fines that they paid were, were the cost of doing business you know th just recently purdue was criminally convicted a second time and the criminal convictions this was i think in 2017 to or maybe even more recently i think it might have been 2018 um the criminal convictions included bribing doctors to prescribe OxyContin and a criminal conviction that involved uh, basically getting inside medical software so that pop-ups on doctors' computers would steer them toward prescribing OxyContin and, and opioids. Purdue pleads guilty, and but not a single individual, not a single member of the Sackler family not a single executive is held accountable. In fact, you still have uh, executives at Purdue running Purdue as we speak, getting bonuses who were working for Purdue at a time when it was involved in committing serious crimes that led to a loss of life. And so we've really not seen accountability. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm talking about accountability from the Department of Justice, and, and, and criminally, um, we've yet to really talk about uh, FDA and its failures in, all, in the entire crisis. Oh, yeah. We, I know we could go on for two or three hours here. Um, and the FDA, because you and I spoke to the FDA down in Maryland one time, and, so, and, and they, they just listen, but they don't seem to do anything. And speaking of that, there's one thing I'd like to bring up is Back in the late 90s, <clears throat> the guy who was in charge of the FDA allowed Purdue to um, do the, the, what do you call the, the paperwork inside the package? Yes. So Curtis Wright 
um, was uh, a medical reviewer uh, and at FDA. He was um, uh, in a leadership role in their analgesic division, the division within FDA that would approve uh, pain medicines. And he approved OxyContin. And what we've learned in recent years is that he was, uh, that he had interactions with Purdue Pharma that may have really been corrupt, um, that he may have even met with Purdue in a hotel near FDA headquarters and allowed Purdue to write their own review. Um, all of the hard work he was supposed to be doing uh, analyzing the studies that are supposed to show whether OxyContin is safe and effective, that instead of him reviewing the studies and, and doing the write-up, he let Purdue do their own write-up, which, um, uh, you know, if at the very least would be unethical, if not uh, criminal behavior. And of course, what we know is that a couple of years later, uh, Curtis Wright takes a job working for Purdue, a much higher paying job working for Purdue. And you know, this is not unique though. A, a term for it is the revolving door. What we've seen since Curtis Wright is that every single director of that analgesic division, after working at that analgesic division has left FDA to then do work for opioid manufacturers. We saw it with Cynthia McCormick, who after leaving FDA worked for uh, other opioid manufacturers, including Johnson & Johnson. We saw it with um, Bob Rappaport, who led the division next for, for many years. In fact, uh, even before Bob Rappaport had left FDA, he had done, he had his paperwork lined up to set up his consulting business with opioid manufacturer, with, with pharmaceutical companies, including opioid manufacturers. And Bob Rappaport's successor, Sharon Hertz, who just recently uh, retired from FDA, the same week that she retired, basically, on her LinkedIn profile, she advertised her business with um, a line to the effect of, with X years at FDA, I can help you get your your pharmaceutical products approved. Yeah, and then, then the people that are still there, isn't that Wilcox and the other person that was nominated? Well, the, the, th th that's right. So the head, so you know, the FDA, the person at the very top, obviously, is the FDA commissioner. The FDA uh, doesn't just regulate drugs; it also re regulates food and cosmetics, and it's broader. Um, the individual, though, who heads up the center at FDA that does pharmaceuticals, the, the lead on the pharmaceutical division of FDA, her name is Janet Woodcock. And she has been there uh, going back to the going back to the 1990s. She was basically Curtis Wright's boss and she was Bob Rappaport's boss and Cynthia McCormick's. She's she's been in charge of of this and you know even after um an improper relationship between bob rapaport uh who was heading up the analgesic division and pharmaceutical companies got uh, uh publicized in a scandal that that hit the washington post um even after that uh scandal broke involving bob rapaport uh a couple of years later was as he was leaving the fda janet woodcock uh, gave him a lifetime achievement award so you can see that she hasn't really had much concern about conflicts of interest or or relationships uh, improper yeah. relationships with pharmaceutical companies and going back to curtis wright from what i understand he got a four hundred thousand dollar bonus for signing with purdue and uh, so a little bit more than he was probably making is working for the fda yeah. so this you know in pro unfortunately it's it's very um, negative incentive, you know. Yeah. Um, now uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. And I, I want to know something about Andrew Kowadnoy. What motivates you to do all that you do? I mean, you've been 
I know you've been at this for quite a few years now. Did you have a personal involvement or is this, a, how, did, how, does, how did you become who you are? Yeah, so, um, well, I mean, I think every, it's hard to find anybody that hasn't been personally affected uh, by, by, the, by the opioid uh, crisis. Um, you know, I, I began working on the problem for New York City's health department it was my first job out of my medical training was to uh, was doing policy work on reducing drug overdose deaths in, in New York City. And New York City had, um, you know, we, we've had high rates of drug overdose deaths for, for decades because New York City was hit hard with a heroin epidemic in the 70s. New York City was hit hard with a crack cocaine epidemic in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I, in the around 2003, when I got to the health department, New York City's health department, um, there were still high rates of deaths in the neighborhoods that had been hit hard with those epidemics. And I began working on the problem. It got me interested in treating opioid addiction. So I started a clinical practice and expected that I was going to be treating you know, people from New York City's poorest neighborhoods that had been hit hard with, with these prior epidemics. And instead, the patients who came to to me for help were from you know working class and middle class and even upper middle class communities from around New York City, um, from the boroughs, from Long Island, from Westchester, from New Jersey, and they were that all of them uh, their addiction had begun with prescription opioids, and so that sort of gave me a a, a sense that we had this new problem emerging. Um, but for me, and I think what really got me hooked on this problem, um, uh, was in 2006. So I, I've been working on drug overdose deaths. I've been treating opioid addiction for a few years. You know, I have a sense that the medical community is prescribing opioids too aggressively. I have a sense that my colleagues and you know, I don't really agree that on how opioids should be prescribed. But it wasn't really that clear what was driving all of this, at least not to me, until a paper got published uh, by um, uh, a doctor at the CDC, uh, Dr. Len Palazzi, publishes a paper in 2006 showing that the rise in deaths involving prescription opioids had paralleled most exactly a rise in the prescribing. He showed that it was this increase in the sales and the prescriptions that it was driving the, the deaths. And he wrote in his paper that the problem is doctors are writing too many prescriptions. It's this pain management movement that's causing this, this crisis. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, he, this makes sense. And if this is what's driving the problem, well, we should be able to turn it around. Doctors obviously don't want to hurt their patients. Of course, some doctors are drug dealers and run pill mills and but from but but most doctors really want to do the right thing and but in that same journal where the where Len Palazzi's paper was published there appeared another paper written by there were a couple of papers actually written by individuals scientists and doctors who were taking money from opioid makers attacking the CDC paper saying that Dr. Palazzi had it all wrong He's, he's not accounting for, for theft from pharmacies. How does he know it's doctor's prescriptions? And if he keeps saying this kind of thing, he's gonna scare doctors away from treating pain. The problem of untreated pain in America will get worse, should knock it off. And of course, these doctors didn't disclose in their paper that they were getting paid by drug makers, by Purdue. Um, but when I figured that out, um, I got, it made me very angry. Um, and because not only did we now have a cause of the problem, a potential solution, but it became very clear that there was an industry with a vested interest in preserving this status quo and even making the prescribing go, go higher. And that really just made me angry. And I, you know, I, so I, since then, I really never stopped working on the problem. I can see that. <laughs> um, so um, let's go back to the 60s, 70s, when people had 
pain problems. What did they do then? That we don't, you know, that we've all of a sudden forgotten it existed or something. Yeah. So the medical community was prescribing appropriately. Uh, there was a little bit of aggressive prescribing here and there. There have always been a few doctor feel goods out there, some who might have been even practicing um, illegally uh, selling prescriptions. But for the most part, the medical community understood that opioids are highly addictive. We understood that if you take an opioid every day, tolerance to the pain relieving effect sets in rapidly. The patients would need higher and higher doses in order to get pain relief. And that as the doses got higher and higher, it would get more dangerous and that the patient's function would decline. And we knew that it would be very hard to ever get people off. And so we knew not to prescribe opioids long-term for common conditions. We knew that they were good to use for someone at the end of life with cancer, but not to be used for backaches. Um, so we were prescribing the way the rest of the world was prescribing. Um, in the 1980s, we begin to deviate a little bit. In the 1980s, this you start to see drug companies and and a few doctors out there sort of pushing the idea that that we should prescribe more, that we're under prescribing. Um, in the 1980s, a conference was held sponsored by drug companies in which the term opiophobia was used. Now, when you put phobia at the end of a word, what you're doing is what that means is you're you're describing a fear of something that's irrational. And so this idea, even in the 1980s, begins to percolate that we have an irrational fear of opioids. Of course, there's nothing irrational about being fearful of a drug that's so addictive and a drug that if somebody takes too much of it, they stop breathing. We should be fearful, of, you know, we should be very cautious with these drugs. Um, but in the mid 90s, with the launch of OxyContin, that's when this campaign to really change prescribing practices uh, kicks into high gear. And, and that's when we start to see an exponential increase in opioid prescribing. So I want to kind of do a hypothetical with you, because um, um, if in Japan there are no guns and for the past one since Unfortunately, President Abe got shot. Some of the things I was reading said that in Japan in the past two years, I mean, 10 years, there have been two murders in the whole country. That's about what happens in this country in 15 minutes. So, you know, so because if you have none of something, then something doesn't happen. Is it possible that if they just stopped manufacturing opioids and selling them. I know there'd be a lot of people on withdrawal and all that stuff, but is it possible to gradually, eventually get this prescriptions? I, I, I saw the last place I saw the average number of prescriptions in the United States was 244 million prescriptions, enough to give a hundred pills to everybody in the United States. I, I found that just overwhelming, yeah. you know, and it shows to me that there's a total Nobody's paying, really, people really aren't paying attention to how many people are dying. And, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. we're going to, we must be, we're probably way over the million mark by now, especially if we counted all the seniors that don't even get autopsies or anything, you know. Yeah. Um, is there, is there, I mean, I know it's hypothetical, but would that be the case if we just stopped, you know, and found these alternative drugs other than opioids? Um, I don't think, at least at present, um, we could completely ban opioids altogether. Um, certainly, we have a lot of people who are opioid addicted, and the, one of the treatments for opioid, uh, first-line treatments for opioid addiction is buprenorphine, which uh, is an opioid. Um, and, um, and even putting addiction treatment medicines aside, you know, I th there are some people for whom we uh, we don't have an alternative, and we might want to. They would need access to an opioid. Um, but and, and their of, life patients with cancer. Yes, yes that's yes. fine with me. Yes. I, I'm so, I'm talking about the, you know, stop giving them to them for a broken wrist or a toe stub or whatever. You know. Yeah, we could we could dramatically reduce 
the initiation of opioids. In other countries, patients are not sent home from the hospital with opioids after surgery. Um, so there was a paper published about a year ago uh, looking at very common surgical procedures, not, not the most painful, but just, you know, like gallbladder surgery, um, uh, appendix uh, surgery, hernia, um, common surgeries that are not especially painful, but also not especially minor. Um, and they looked at the average number of pills that patients were sent home with after these surgeries, and they compared the United States to several other countries around the world. And in the United States, the mean, the average number of pills uh, was 20 pills that a patient was sent home from. Uh, uh, in all of these, in almost every other country, the average was close to zero. And um, the, there was one other country where there was an average of about like two pills. So in other countries, it, you don't send people home after surgery with an opioid prescription. In the United States, you've got hospitals that are proudly announcing their initiatives to reduce opioids. And, you know, we no longer send people with 30. Our default is to send people with, with 20 or with 10. Um, but w you're absolutely right, Tony. We really could be sending people home with zero for for the vast majority of indications where we now routinely give opioids. Yeah, I, I had my knee replaced and I went to zero and I survived quite well. You know, after two days of ibuprofen and ice, I was able to walk and I'm, I'm not the exception. I would be the rule, you know, because I just didn't do it, you know. But they, they insisted and to the point where they made me sign at the hospital that I was refusing it. That, yep, that's, and that's, in, a, in, in another country, you would not have been sent home with any opioids. Yeah, it, it's just mind-blowing. It is starting to change in other countries um, so that uh, in almost every other country in the world, besides the United States, opioid prescribing is going up. And what you have happening in these other countries is this exact same campaign that was launched in the United States, the same playbook that Purdue and other opioid manufacturers used in the US, they're using that in other countries. In some countries very effectively, in Brazil the prescribing is, is exploding, in um, some of the Scandinavian countries prescribing is really beginning to take off, in Israel the prescribing is going up rapidly. And because the drug companies are concerned that the American experience, the American opioid crisis, which the world hears about, will potentially hurt sales in other countries, they're getting papers published and they're trying to make the argument that the opioid crisis in the United States wasn't driven by this enormous increase in opioid prescribing, but that there's something unique about Americans. It's, it's the American culture, it's it's unique to America, and they're even putting out papers that, that try to make this argument. Um, but of, of course, in other countries, if the any, any countries, any population, if you overexpose that population to a highly addictive drug, people will become addicted and will, will die of overdoses. And these other countries really are at risk of, of following our, our footsteps. So I think the parallel with guns makes sense makes sense to me in the sense that, you know, I, I do believe that the reason so many Americans, uh, the reason we have such a high mortality from, from guns is because we have so many guns in the United States in the same way. Pretty obvious. You know, yeah. That's where it is. We're just about out of time. And I want to thank you very much for um, spending this hour with us. Um, so much knowledge uh, going through my brain here. Um, you are very, very informative, and I'd actually like you to come back another time because we didn't really get into the uh, the suboxone type approach, which I think is really critical for those people who are addicted now, and they need that medical support to become unaddicted because very few doctors are doing it, comparing to how many doctors there are, and I think. 
we need the bupropen. How do you say that? Bupropen. Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. And I just wanted to say it correctly there. So, and I think we need to really emphasize on that. Now, I'd like to tell our listeners that you've been listening to Dr. Andrew Kolodnoy and very knowledgeable about everything. And we didn't discuss that you were the, one of the key witnesses at the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, correct? Um, uh, well, you were on the list or something. How, how did that? I, 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 I'm a, I was on some, some of the lists that Purdue had for, uh, for documents that they wanted to keep sealed um yeah because i uh, as you know tony i haven't had a good relationship with with that company um i was um i i did help in the loss uh lawsuits against purdue um uh, i i was helping the state of oklahoma in its lawsuit against purdue um purdue settled with the state of oklahoma and then went into bankruptcy court and so i haven't been where there really haven't been witnesses against them so they were very clever to put the, the Sackler family was very clever to put Purdue into bankruptcy um, just as the litigation got going. So um, I have been an expert witness against uh, some of the other opioid manufacturers. Okay. So now to our listeners, if you are listening to this and you would like to tell your friends about it, and if they're outside of the Boston market, they can listen on WMEXBoston.com. They can stream it. And again, the name of the show is The Courage to Hope. And if we had a lot of doctors like Dr. Flaudnoy, we'd have a lot of hope here about getting rid of this epidemic. And this is our goal here, other several factors, but this is one of our major goals is to reduce the number of prescriptions on opioids in this country. And I want to thank you all for listening and have a good evening.